Hi, I'm Ryan Guillory, producer of Costume Talk. We would like to dedicate this episode of Costume Talk to Mr. Joe Perez, a beloved costumer and friend to many in our community. Rest in power, pony dancer. You will be missed. Costume Talk is an immersive exploration of costuming, featuring a parade of local costume lovers from New Orleans. I'm Shel Romelat. I'm Julianne Lanyev. And I'm Caroline Thomas. We are three costume designers in New Orleans who spend our lives making, wearing, and discussing costumes. Join us as we take a deep dive into the glitzy, glue-filled world of Mardi Gras costuming, which here happens all year long. We have conversations with other costume lovers and makers in NOLA that often lead to unexpected places. Because costuming isn't just about playing dress-up, it's a way of life that can change who you are. Here we are in the Den of Muses recording our first podcast together. I'm like beyond happy, which is kind of a strange feeling in this yeah. moment because I'm like, feel like I really haven't been happy and like, like truly happy in six months. And I feel like a little guilty for being happy, but. But we're also surrounded by so awesome. crew de vue floats right now. So. There's a lot of dicks around us. I think we're all. I think we all it's walked not just in, dicks. Not just dicks. I think we all walked in here and immediately we're just like energized by. Like, I walked in here and honestly, I burst into tears. Like yeah, without even being able to control it, I just looked around and was like, "The last time I was here, I was having fun with my friends, and we didn't know what was around the <laughs> corner, and that was when we were like." Drinking after one another and hugging and oh yeah, I went to box of wine like I was drinking oh my God. like directly from the sprocket. You know the things we did in the before times. <laughs> oh, I saw you do something. Don't even, don't you do? Don't. It is way too early in the podcast to be spilling the tea. I promise to never I tell that story. Day, girl. All right, what well, happened in the before it. times stays in the before times. We are masked up and we are here. In the Crew de Vuden, because it is a super safe space for us to record, and it's magical. For those of you who haven't had the chance to see the Crew de Vue parade, it's a satirical group of 17 floats that's made by the paraders, and it is the most X-rated, irreverent parade. It's very different from any image of Mardi Gras that you may have in your head. And one thing that sets it apart is that the members build the floats ourselves. And that is yeah. one of the ways that the three of us have gotten to know each other. And so the Crew de Vue Den it has meaning to the public. And it also has personal significance for us as makers and as friends. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it's surrounded by dicks and boobs and butts and all sorts of raunchy, political, yeah. drug-themed Yeah. M- paper mache debauchery that is nothing like you've ever seen before. There's a pretty badass RGB over there too, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to be here. I did not think that we would be starting this podcast. I mean, I, like the fact that we're even starting this podcast is all, it's kind of blows my mind because it's like, yeah, we're doing it. But well, and being in the middle here, of COVID. And yeah. being in this den, it definitely creates this time travel sense. Right. 
Yeah. But it's also perfect timing because usually this time I'd be freaking out about Halloween and have a thousand orders and yeah. So for the first time in many, many years, I can concentrate on something else and I think it's a good time. And I think everybody needs a little bit of costuming Mardi Gras magic in their life right now, considering maybe we're not getting in real life. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's do it. And, and that's was, I, I didn't imagine it just sort of came to me at one point, like, let's, let's just jump in and do this. I feel like if we can't have this for real together, as we normally do, if we can talk about it and connect and share stories and just do what we can to kind of get through. Yeah. You know, Caroline, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, I am currently painting some Mardi Gras floats and pretending like everything's just going to go fine in February and nothing's changing. Um, so it's a weird kind of like playing the, the band on the Titanic kind of vibe. <laughs> and so we're going to, for all of our listeners, we are going to drop an episode that's going to give you the, you know, inside intel on Caroline, Julianne, and myself. So yeah. you'll know a bit more about us and what we do. But just quickly, yeah, because we don't want to spend the whole episode because right, right. already it's too long. So... um <laughs> There's a weird, I keep doing the back and forth during COVID where half the time I have mush brain and you're just like doom scrolling and it's hard to be creative. And then I'll have these like crazy spurts where I'm just like, I'm just gonna, like it becomes its own coping mechanism, you know, just to keep yourself like creative and kind of focused on something outside of like your Facebook newsfeed. Yeah. It's a way to feel vital and feel like your old self again. Yeah. And finding ways to connect to people through it. I think that's been a challenge like now that we're not out on the streets. And for me as someone who can be a little shy in person, but if I have a giant bird on top of my head, like people have a thing to talk about and I can like connect with other people and having to find other ways to like translate that to more intimate settings or like a whole porch culture that's oh, it's kind totally of evolving. Challenging. Yeah. I'm 100% with you cuz I'm the right. same way. Like let's talk about this thing and it's just an easy connection. And yeah. that's what's cool about costuming in so many ways is it gives you something to talk about with a stranger and Yeah. Yeah. It gives you a way to be playful and pretend with someone that we don't access in our everyday lives. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But now we're in a weird space where you kind of have to try to find another outlet for it. And whether that's like online or, you know, and just. Um, or starting a, a podcast. Toy that yeah. <laughs> All right, so, well, and with the squeak, that's the perfect transition to Julianne Lagnap. Hey, J-Lab, what's up? Hey, show. How are you doing? How's Tell us about your COVID. Well, somehow I'm busier than ever. I know. It's, like, fucked up. We have a problem. All of us. <laughs> right, it turns out that apparently I have time management issues. No, oh, I have what? total what? time oh, management yeah. issues. But it, you know what? It's not even that, because I've been so goddamn productive. 
I, and I'm even saying no to stuff now too. I'm really proud I, of yeah. myself. I've grown a lot. Um, I, I've been taking advantage of this quote unquote pause to do a lot of goals for myself and I've needed to get a lot more organized in my business. I have order sheets now. Oh wow. Yeah. But still somehow there's all these piles of projects that have been there since before Mardi Gras. And now I'm finally able to turn time to them, but also I'm growing as an artist and there's new projects I want to explore. And that's been an exciting opportunity. Um, And then also, yes, there's just coping with the stress of the world and personal crises, um, which overshadow anything external. Um, Right. Well, and then just the daily, I mean, I know one of the things the three of us share that we're probably not, we're perhaps a bit hesitant to admit because I'm hesitant to admit it because I don't like facing it. It's just like, shit. Like... I rely on people wanting costumes right, and right, wanting right, to go right. out and wanting to have fun yeah. and wanting, you know, to make stuff. And it's scary to think. And I don't think that it's people won't want to do that. I'm just realistic about, you know, right. understanding people's limitations. And a lot of people have been out of work. And I mean, it's a it, like everyone here is fully aware and cognizant and and living right the moment of the hustle and how to survive and figure it out yeah so like yeah. we're don't mistake our hey we're trying to turn a you know again like i think like we're yeah i mean i've been uncommonly lucky hustling. that i've been able to stay so busy and have so many opportunities and continue to support myself as an artist. And actually through mask making, I have a degree of stability that I've never had as a freelance artist. I've been doing my own thing for eight years full time. And for the first time since then, I know exactly what I'm sewing that's going to pay my rent every month. And so Julianne is one of your big things right now, which was not your main thing. I mean, you're, you normally make, I would say the majority of what you do is custom costumes for people. Right. And and so the way that my career normally goes is that I'm working on eight different projects in a month and the next month I'm working on a different seven. And the month after that there's 13 and things keep changing. And I love that, but there's always, it's always adjusting to the next project and it's very invigorating, but it's also. It can be draining. Yes. And it's constantly responding to a new client's needs and, Mm -hmm. and. Especially if it's a new client and you don't have a relationship with them. Yeah. Right. Now you are a mask maker extraordinaire and. I have streamlined my mask making production to a degree that has never been done before. <laughs> right. Life. And so, and, and this is pretty cool, y'all. Seriously. Julianne is like, like old school mask making. I mean, we're talking a decade ago. I'm going to let you talk about your, your, your entrance into the mask making. But I, I just have to share this because we're all friends and we talk and hang out. That's why we're doing this because this is what we do. and. Uh, Julianne, when people started wearing masks and we were making masks and that whole effort was starting, I remember talking to Julianne and her just being like, oh, oh, 
Man, I've been making masks like like she had like this was it's like a world weary. Uh, right, like she had done yeah. this. Like she had served her time. She already was like mask weary. It took a solid month of coaching for me to yeah. be willing to make masks again. And so like your your tell us about your original mask making. I started making zipper masks 10 years ago for the Burning Man Festival, which is in Nevada, and it's a dusty, dancey environment. I'm a New Orleans native and so I knew I needed to keep on partying throughout that and looking good. And so I started making zipper masks. I worked at a fabric store in Venice Beach at the time and I was playing with a zipper and just trying to think about what's what's a different way that I could use a zipper and I was I started sewing masks by hand. The first 600 masks that I made were all hand stitched. Each one was unique. They were all made from scraps of my costuming fabrics and I paid my rent for a long time with those masks and that was my first time having an Etsy store that was my first time being recognized it was amazing going out to this festival where there were 60,000 people and every once in a while someone would recognize me from my mask posts because every mask listing was me wearing it and and this is before like Instagram and yes this was before Instagram this was Etsy and Facebook and Coming from New Orleans, we have a great community and we have a great party. And so I brought those traditions with me to this new environment. And that was really a place for me to discover those roots within myself. That's cool. And so I got totally burned out on making masks. (laughs) I did it for years in Los Angeles. I had a marriage that wasn't going great. And so I left that relationship. I left Burning Man. I stopped making masks. And I would get requests every summer after that to make masks. And I'd just say, no, I don't want to do it anymore. And so for this to come up, and suddenly, once again, I'm stuck in my house. And I can't go out and do any of the fun things. (laughs) And there's people wanting masks. And this isn't the life that I thought I wanted. And I have to make masks to pay the rent and stress and Um, so I had a lot of baggage to get through with that, but luckily I had all the supplies on hand. And so I was able to make masks every time I started to feel scared about the situation or upset about my life, I would go in my studio and sew masks and being able to turn those anxieties into a product that people were excited to wear. And I was paying my rent. This was before any sort of unemployment was coming through, which, you know, I never got that yeah so. I mean as an independent contractor you didn't really have- right I mean I've been paying I've been sewing my rent for eight years now and sewing your pandemic yeah. didn't stop that um it just made me funnel my energies in a different direction and Caroline that's yeah. so similar to what you've been doing too um Explain, because you're yeah. a costume designer, but you do so much more, and yeah. it's not like we all don't do more, but right, right. really, you know, you're a carnival artist, and yeah, I, dig um, in. Yeah, sure. I, I, I make headdresses. Um, I do kind of custom, more kind of sculptural elements that it, a lot of ways connects to my other job, which is working for Royal Artist, which is a local uh, float production company, and I design... Uh, the Rex and Proteus, and I also paint uh, floats for both of them, the two oldest braids in the city. So there's a lot of like history in that. And 
um, so forth. And so I don't know. And I think I do a lot of my headdresses because I like to have one part of my art that I don't have to go to like a design committee for. And it's just, I get to make what I want to make. And it's not my primary, I mean, it's a chunk of my income, but I have, I see it as the part of my work that I'm not so fixated on profit. And it's just about, I love, like you were saying, you go to Burning Man and you see your mask out. That is the highlight of carnival season is seeing my stuff out in the wild and seeing how people have worn it and how they've interpreted it. And I don't know, that brings me a lot of happiness, but I haven't obviously been able to do that um, with COVID. I mean, I've been making a few headpieces here and there, but I think a lot of my inspiration for that comes from like knowing there's an event coming up and like imagining what people should be wearing for Easter or whatever. Um, so I've been making a lot more just signs. I got inspired during Black Lives Matter to start making signs for people that are going to the protest. And my friend Devin, who is the founder of the Red Beans and Rice Parade, he uh, fronted his own money to get like 1,200 uh, posters printed of my art to pass out all the protest. And um, Okay, I must lay you down here. Yeah. Because you're, you're <laughs> being humble and you're like, grazing over what I feel like is some like major brag points. And I would like to say that Caroline's work as a Mardi Gras artist is characterized by some wonderful caricatures that she does of local figures and her talent for portrait painting Mm -hmm. has been really a great connecting point. Um, I've, I've tried to reach out like whenever I see somebody I've done on like the side of a satire float in person, I always want to jump up and be like, Hey, I've painted you. I've learned the hard way. Uh, city council members do not like it when you're, (laughs) you admit that you've painted them. Cause it's always like an unflattering caricature, you know? Um, yeah, they're not as excited about it as I am. Cause I, I feel I'm like, I've studied every inch of your face. I know about that weird mole, like right under your eyelid. <laughs> they don't like it. Um, well, you and I have had this conversation before because when I sketch my people, I try to draw them in the most flattering light. Sure. And so I, I can't see those flaws and you're able to draw them much more specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Having an, I mean, again, like Julian was talking about, like the despair and just like trying to filter that towards something. And I can have a little control over this little thing. And, you know, recently I've been making custom election signs for people and raising money with that. And I'm about around like two grand and fundraising with that just out of my house. And actually my friend Lala that does all like glitter purses and shoes, she's actually just raised $6,000 um, just, uh, auctioning off her glitter art, like on Instagram. And so I think there are a lot of people here in New Orleans that are trying to find ways when you feel pretty helpless. It can be like, Hey, let's fundraise for this like Senate race that's happening in Maine or something like that. Or, or even like, um, you know, for local black lives matter groups and stuff like that. And so it's been cool to see how people are keeping themselves feeling productive and, and having control over one little thing, you know? I would like you to maybe go a bit more, not in depth, but like, you're like, I'm painting pictures. Like, yeah. Right. And there's the whole, there's you're not the just whole painting pictures. Connection. You fucking painted pictures of every single fucking person that was murdered by Police, right? Well, not law just law enforcement, and right. right. Some in pr- died in prison, yeah. And one, it wasn't even all of them because honestly, I could paint one every single day 
for the rest of the year. Right. And it would be, but I try to, I try to, I started taking requests and people that wanted certain ones. I was able to get some for some local, the DSA reached out to me. So I made some for some local families that were doing some marches on Jefferson Parish. Um, and, and these posters were reprinted. Yeah. Some of them made into prayer flags, into posters that went all over. Well, I made it into a Google Doc on my Instagram so people could print them out. So I know, yeah, there were some in, I saw some in Portland. I saw some in Cincinnati. Some people in New York were printing them out. And, um, and I tried to find good places for the originals. So there's, if you go to like Addis, Ethiopian, um, he has a whole wall of ancestors with a bunch of them. And, and then I made multiples of all of them. Um, I had 1,200 printed with the, with the Devon from Red Beans, group Red Beans. So uh, we were able to pass them out of protest and just, and just put them up. I think in New Orleans, we have such a porch culture. Like having that as the kind of its own type of self-expression. A lot of people put them out, you know, sticking out their windows and stuff. And, I have one in my refrigerator. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how that, everyday reminder is is a poignant reminder that pushes you yeah i saw one on a neighbor's porch today i think it's i mean i and i got some good advice from elisa beast actually who's a local performer and she was like about catering to people's better angels and uh that's been kind of focus of a lot of the protest posters i made and then some of the signs i made for people's porches where it's just like it's about trying to appeal to people's empathy and just focus on that. And like, cause there's enough anger going around already and you can generate your own very easily. It is, there's a good stockpile. And I think about everyone right now. That's totally on brand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Yeah. That was her message of encouraging people to follow you. Yeah. And that's the way I've been doing recently. I actually did a bunch of portraits of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I just, people would send me a screenshot of them donating to, I had like a list of, nonprofits for people to donate to and they just sent me a screenshot of a donation and I would give them like this portrait. So um getting art out there and also because it's like people are mostly gonna be putting these in public spaces, especially someplace like New Orleans where we get a lot of visitors and people that aren't necessarily from here. So it's not just preaching the choir. Like when you put that stuff in a public space place in New Orleans, it gets processed by people that are just passing through and often from very conservative parts of the South. So I think it's good to represent New Orleans as um, a city that maybe is, I don't know, you, you just, you, you can't live in New Orleans and be aware that it's a city that is built by black culture. And it's just, and really all the South, but like New Orleans is at least a little bit more aware, but yeah, it, celebrate it. Your portraits are beautiful and the colors are so enticing. They have a really deep meaning and they're so recognizable and the way that you used your talent to amplify your voice inspired me at that same period to make masks for the protests. Yeah. I made a series of masks using colorful black fabrics. Yeah. And yeah. then Shell took them to the protests and distributed them so people could gather safely and joined with a lot of other mask makers in the city. And so that was yeah. a great way that you... It was a ripple effect. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and we leaned on each other to make our world better. And there were a lot of Mardi Gras crews out at the BLM protests because I think, again, that's already... 
there's a very fine line between a parade and a protest. And so I think a lot of people had already created those types of communities. I know I connected and you connected with Queer for the sci-fi that we're out there like marching for trans rights and stuff. So I think it's, it's cool to see how that all kind of interconnects. And for me, when I hit that sweet spot for my own like creative gratification, it's something that is like connected to the community and like costuming is that, but there's also other ways of getting that same type of like creative high. Right. And so this is a, an episode about COVID and costuming, which is, I, you know, would never have imagined this to be our first episode, of course. <laughs> um, but it is perfect in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is everything that you've sort of mentioned just now is how incredible it is the way that people in this community, especially, and that's what we're focused on here today, not discounting the efforts of anyone else, but people that are associated with or a part of a community that we would say is connected through costuming, not that that's right. the only thing. I would say a creative community. I don't really know what the right term is, but a costuming community, a costumers, costume lovers, Right. Carnival, I don't know. You know, it's it's so broad because it's everything from social aid and pleasure clubs to, you know. Right, just a few friends, friends from your neighborhood together, that right. do a little lap around the block on a specific day. Yeah. That are raising money and or just deciding yeah. on a Saturday to get together and, you know, wear headdresses and pick up litter in their neighborhood. I mean, and that's the kind of thing right. that does happen in New Orleans. And the point here being that, What's really cool is the way that this creative spirit and this innovation and this desire to meet challenges and needs right. creatively right. is born out of the networks and the motivation and the energy that's already there and built because of costuming and... So everything you're touching on, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, a couple years ago when everyone's pipes burst and I was one of those people and it was a member of my crew group, Frank, who like. Frank the plumber. Yeah, Frank, Frank the, the plumber. plumber. And he was at my house right away. His phone was blowing up because everybody needed a plumber, but he came to my house first and took care of it and charged me way too little for it. And I gave him like a piece of art as part of like the trade. And that's like, that's your community. That's well, your village. I sewed masks for Frank the plumber right go. at the start. He had me make these special full head masks so that he could go under people's houses and he needed oh, to have a filter pocket so right. that he could add COVID protection. Yeah. Yeah. Frank the plumber called me up and asked me to make masks and I was too busy to do anything for anybody, but okay. Yeah. I made those for Frank. Well, and there's been a lot of crews that have like, stepped up i mean i'm friends with devin from crew of Red yeah Beans. talk to us a bit about that like yeah. and and everybody listen yeah you know devin, devin we is, are huge fans of devin he's a great friend red yeah. beans crew of red beans everything yeah. they have been doing is amazing we are going to have him on devin you're gonna yes. get asked yeah you don't have a choice in it right but we'll find just briefly <laughs> we're gonna touch on caroline please yeah yeah so he, it's amazing his um wife is a er nurse or er doctor i'm sorry 
And um, so he was seeing what was happening in the hospitals because New Orleans got hit hard right in the beginning of COVID. And yeah, so he started something called Feed the Frontline. And basically it's taking money from, he's raising money and then he's using that money to hire local restaurants to make food for everyone working in the hospitals and dealing with all this craziness. And he raised over a million dollars and kept almost 50 businesses operating through lockdown, uh, half of which are owned by women, like a third by people of color, and was able to hire out-of-work musicians and performers to deliver the food. And so it's just over 90,000 meals during this period. And then he was able to transition once the hospitals kind of calmed down, he transitioned to feed the second line. And so that was having... 150 different cultural creators around the community. Most of them are elderly. Like you're talking about like your Mardi Gras Indian chiefs and your musicians. Culture bearers. Yeah. That need support. Yeah. $50,000 of groceries covered and then hiring also musicians to do the grocery shopping. And even people like he needed some promotional photos done. He hired my friend who's a photographer, Ryan, who was out of work because he usually gets that nice burst of like, wedding photos in the spring and losing all that. And so just be able to get work to people during this time. So, and I think that's the thing that only exists when you have a pre-existing community and bonds that have been built through carnival, you know, and the amount of people you meet and the amount of people that feel this bond with you and are willing to like step up, you know, I think it's really invaluable. I think our central organizing principle is creating art and sharing joy with each other. And of course we would do that in times of carnival and also in times of crisis. Right. And I don't know, I've not lived many other places, I will say. So in my provincial, you know, navel gazing, New Orleans, self-centeredness, I, and, and I'm not a person that really subscribes to a lot of New Orleans exceptionalism, but I do feel like there's something about that creative energy that whether you're in a crew, you're a costumer, a float builder, whatever, there's something about, for most people, it's in addition to their regular life, right? Like you make space for that in addition to what else you do. This is not right. us. But you have but, like an office job. Right. And you just, yeah. And then like, that's your thing. Right. And the, that space so easily because of the connections that are forged through that can be shifted in times of crisis. Yeah. yeah. To support not only the people within your organization, but that so... Because it's not just about like, hey, the person in my crew can hook me up with this. It's in many ways about like, hey, how do we as a crew help this person or that person or this group or go beyond? And we've relied on this. I was here through Katrina and I feel like I've seen this before in, you know, in, in, in ways and. Yeah, we'll have, wow. to have a conversation about the Katrina Mardi Gras. Yeah, that's that's a whole another thing. But but you but yeah, can see you see why it exists, right? Like this isn't, and this is by design. Like you, it's a way of creating this village that you know you you bond through festivities, so that when crisis happens, 
you have this like fortification in place. Well, have you all had the experience of your clients reaching out and just checking to make sure that you have work and making sure that you're okay? It's been very touching for me. Yeah. And even throwing some projects my way just to, you know, they're worried about me, especially early on in lockdown, people reaching out and being like, Hey, can you just like paint my bathroom something crazy? And I wasn't even like putting any signals on Instagram that I was in a, in need of that, but they just, they had the money and they're making sure that the people around them that might be losing work have some type of revenue coming in. Yeah. Seeing the, we just, my store has been open just since last week for the first time since right after Mardi Gras and having some of the regulars, my regulars from the Marini neighborhood here, Marini Bywater, love y'all. My regulars from the neighborhood that always stop by and having them stop by like they normally do with their dogs and, you know, and just, it has been absolutely like the most heartwarming, incredible experience because it's not about what they're buying or what they need. It's just about being here in the neighborhood and returning and a sign and we're being safe, you know, I got the plexiglass. Nola sneeze guards, buy local. Don't go on Amazon. Nola sneeze guards, buy local. We got the plexiglass. We got the hand sanitizer. We're safe. You know, we're we're figuring it out. But that's been awesome to feel that love from people. Shell runs the New Orleans Costume Center, which is a store in this neighborhood with a lot of food. Foot traffic. A, yeah. A, and we both sell our stuff out of there yes. as customers. And she sells ready-made costumes by local artists. and also costumes. Or, we specialize yes. in the sale of handmade costumes and costume-making supplies, Julianne. Thank you for asking. A lot of, like, nice, um, like, upcycled, you know, like a lot of recycled goods, like, you know, totally. and I've sold just supplies of mine that I wanted to kind of purge, and it's a nice way of making sure that it, it's going to someone that's going to use it, not just dumping the trash. And it's a great way to connect makers of yeah. all. And you've made some amazing scores where you've um, gotten into some people's treasure treasure troves. Oh and, yeah. yeah, acquisitions, girl. Well, my family, and this is for the Get to Know You podcast, but my family was in the business of estate liquidation, and so it's kind of just in me, and. Yeah, I've had some really exciting acquisitions and gotten to clean out some really cool people's studios and collections. And personally, I'm very passionate about reuse and repurpose. And the number one thing I get people is not having a lot of money to costume. Sure. And so while it's fun to blow the bank when you can... And I fully encourage that. I'm guilty of it. Oh, totally. I mean, there's definitely <laughs> moments. Like, I got, there's I'm definitely gonna be moments. The, I'm going to be the prettiest princess at this ball. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. There's definitely <laughs> moments. And I love, and one of the things I've been a big proponent of, as y'all know, is, hey, you know, I'm wearing a Caroline Thomas. Yeah. I'm wearing, you know, a Julianne Lagnap. I'm wearing these things. But at the same time, repurposing. Right. And reusing and that we all have costume closets and we all are trying to, you know, everybody got to have a new suit. 
Right, right, yeah. Don't want to wear nothing the same. I'm not wearing the same thing. Not the same mm-hmm. way. I'll Never. do it. Do a build Never. up, maybe. You right. Know? Yeah, like change it up. But yeah. So, how do we, you know, have like a thrift store? Anyways, that's sort of my thing, which is a perfect lead in to in all of this conversation. Our first guest that I'm so excited about, Allison Parker, because. I'm super passionate about reusing and repurposing and being environmentally conscientious costumers, which is really freaking hard. And you know that, you know that, Caroline, Julianne, I mean, this is something that we have to face. There's a lot of waste. And so I've tried to step in in my own way and be a part of helping us figure out a way to use that waste. But Allison Parker has done it on a level that is not only about servicing the community and educating the community about repurposing, but about teaching kids how to take yeah. those materials and sew them and use them and how to make stuff. And yeah. that is freaking cool. Yeah. And how that could, all the possibilities of how that gets translated. and Right. Those- the kids the rest of their life yeah i mean sewing life skill what greater definition of magic than being able to imagine something and then make it real with your hands and what's cool to me is the idea that it's it's not just about imagining something fantastical and making it happen but that this is a moment that can teach us about how the ability to imagine something and create it is not only something that can be used for fun and sparkle and good times, but that has practical applications for survival. And that's what's cool, I think, about the story about Allison and Rick Rock. And it's not only her. And I want to make it clear that we are talking to Allison and Rick Rock and what she did in her mask-making efforts in early covid there were many groups in town that were doing that. I was a part of one, um, and there were many different ones, I'm sure many that I don't even know of. So, And there was a national effort. We are focusing in particular because of Allison's history as a costume maker and Rick Rack and what it is in this community and as a highlight of like that pivot. But so many people were doing this. Right. And yeah, I follow a lot of costume accounts on Instagram because I, yeah, I like to be inspired by as much of this, much of them as possible. And it was incredible to see all of their accounts across the world suddenly like pivoting towards that. And I think there's something about that creative mind where you're always ready to like kind of shift to whatever your next project is. In this case, it was just, you know, lockstep with that. Hey, y'all, we need to take a break, but when we come back, we will interview Allison Parker of Rick Rack about her mask-making efforts. Welcome back, everybody. We are sitting here with Allison Parker. She is a costume designer with the New York and also the New Orleans Costume Film Unions. And for those of us in the know, 
the local 764 Theatrical Costumes of New York and the local 478 here in Louisiana, which is very cool. She is also the founder and the executive director of Rick Rack. Rick Rack is a textile and recycling sewing nonprofit serving the youth of New Orleans. It is one of my favorite nonprofits in the city. Hands down, Allison is smiling at me because she knows how obsessed I am with her and this nonprofit. And so, hey, Allison, we're so happy to have you here. I'm so excited to hear about Rick Rock and everything you're going to tell us about what you've been doing over COVID because it's some pretty exciting stuff. Welcome to Costume Talk. Yeah, welcome. Thanks, you guys. Dude, this is such a rad like thing to do and like a great way to, to give back to the costume community. I'm honored to be here, really. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So tell us about what Rick Rack is all about. Totally. So this one time in band camp. No, I'm totally not going <laughs> to nice. do that. Um, uh, I have just been surrounded by clothes and textiles for most of my life, um, sewing or costumes. Um, and it just kind of uh, became overwhelming to me to a point where like now, even now, like I go into a mall and I just see trash. Like I just see like piles of clothes to me are just trash now, like because that's where I've seen most of them end up at some point or another. So even like working for the Cirque du Soleil for a brief time, I would see their clothes go into the trash, their costumes, excuse me, um, and then just leftover fabric going into the trash. And so it was just a desire to be able to divert that. And just as climate change and other things like that became more prominent in people's everyday language, learning more about the statistics behind like what textile waste does to the environment you know how much uh how many how much greenhouse gases does it actually create so that was one part that became um important to me and the other part was moving to new orleans and really seeing that there weren't any resources for kids to learn how to sew so i just was like okay if there's one city in one state in any part of this nation where kids should know how to sew or make a costume it should be here so I came from the 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 old 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 school um, education system where we taught we were taught home economics, right? So I had a sewing class. I learned how to make donuts and screw in a light bulb or whatever. But um, the sewing part was a part of your education, right? So I just felt like that was something that was missing, obviously now. And if you really don't have like a family member or a friend to teach you how to sew, how in the world are you going to learn how to sew? So for kids, it was like. I wanted to be able to reach and find the kids who were like, I want to learn how to sew, but I have nowhere to go and I have no resources and no one to teach me. So I also wanted to kind of incorporate the repurposing part into that in that, you know, you don't have to have a lot of money to be able to create a costume. You don't have to have a lot of resources to create a costume. You just have to have these tools of an imagination. So it was really like, okay, if I'm going to teach them how to sew, I don't want to say, okay, here's a list of supplies and materials you need to go get. I'm going to pull it from my from my stash of all my donated, discarded textiles and costumes and clothes. So um, that's how it all kind of started, like with the big old repurposing, you know, circular uh, sewing thing. I, the, it's like, it blows my mind. It's so cool because, you know, I 100% support this idea of reducing textile waste and there's so much you can do to repurpose so much. We really share this passion and the way that you've approached this through education, not just by standing on a platform and saying, hey, you should repurpose stuff, but getting out there and teaching young people how to have the skills to actually do that so that they don't have to go 
shop in that pile of garbage at the mall that they can use their money and buy something for so much less and transform it and, you know, feel really empowered by that experience is, is very cool. Totally. I mean, I think now sometimes like when you see like dollar generals that are always in like marginalized communities, right? So it's like if instead of a dollar general where it's a pile of crappy clothes, throwaway clothes almost, they're pretty much disposable, right? I mean, they last like a few wears. There's a sewing center, you know? So instead of like, okay, my pants have got a rip, I'm going to throw them away and get a new pair because they're made crappy. Um, I'm going to learn how to fix them, repair them, alter them, change them. Like you learn how to do different things with it. So it's really, you know, it's about sharing those skills and giving people an option. What age range do you serve? So eight is usually a good place to start. I have done as low as five. Um, But yeah, eight is a good place to start. And these are not... Tell us a little bit. The, you actually, I know you go out into the schools, but you also have classes that kids can take as well, right? Yeah, totally. So we've done, um, we've done a couple of summer camps. We especially do uh, a great one at the Ogden Museum. Um, you know, their Southern art, and it kind of like lends itself a little bit to like a repurposing and reuse kind of thing. So we have that one, and then we have done some after-school programs. Um, a, a few we've done where, you know, we'll end up with a fashion show at the end of the semester or something to that effect. Um, yeah, but it's a really big part. Like, before we even get out sewing needles or thread, we talk about biodegradable, you know, like, we throw in, like, big worlds of, of recycling. Like, what do all these things mean and how? Because kids don't normally relate their clothing to those kind of things, like like trash. I think that's really amazing because so many people don't think about garments and textile waste. We think about plastics and straws and things that we throw away, but we don't think about the way that we contribute it with garments and costuming is a huge part of this. A lot of people don't want to spend a lot of money on costuming and you don't have to. And I love that you're empowering, especially kids to, you know, know how to do this. And so when did Rick Rack start? 2012. Tell us about how you got to Rick Rack and your life working up until that point as a costume designer. Cause you know, you're the real deal. You've like had some cool jobs and tell us about it. Right. So, I mean, I was accountant, uh, in my first life and, um, just decided that wasn't something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So like everybody else, I dropped out of college in my junior year. And um, just decided that I like clothes, like th- that was my jam. Like I wanted to do something like my fortune cookie said, like that you love and money will follow, right? So I was like, okay, well, I like clothes, but how can I make liking clothes into a job? On a complete like spoof, followed a friend down to Florida from Virginia, <clears throat> the University of Florida Graders, uh, and uh, ended up in costume design in the theater, right? So I, I was in there as a 28-year-old with people who were graduating from high school, uh, freshmen who were in like the theater club and knew every Shakespeare play and I'd seen Cats. And that was the extent <laughs> of my like theatrical background. Like that was it. And that was even on a like something to do, but we didn't do, you know, we, we, I didn't grow up in a theater background by any means. So um, I got into costume design because they didn't have a fashion program and I loved it. Like, I just, I lived there. Like, they couldn't keep me out of the shop. I did my work study there. I did my classes there. I volunteered for stuff. Like, it was just my jam. Like, I was, I found my passion. 
while I was there, I went and studied abroad in London for a little bit. I'm I'm a British citizen, so I thought I might entertain the idea of going back to England. But I saw this thing called the Cirque du Soleil while I was there, and I was this just like that. Thing. What, yeah, what this year was that? Show that would have been ninety eight, as in nineteen ninety eight. Not eighteen ninety, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it feels it like really it. Really good for hundred years old. <laughs> it feels like it. Yeah, so I was like, "That's how I'm going to work for when I graduate. That's it, done." And then it was, you know, I saw like two more shows. Like I went to Amsterdam for a weekend. There was another show. I saw a poster, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's the same. We got to go and see it." And then randomly, you know, I saw another one in in California, and I remember like writing. It was like, "Dear Cirque du Soleil, you don't know me, but everywhere I go, there's one of your shows. I'm going to work for you." And I've made like these little masks in my mask class and like did all that. I'm sure I have that on a dot printer letter somewhere. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, like when I got back to, to the University of Florida from studying in London, there was uh, a show opening up in Orlando. So I was like, whether I'm a janitor, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm working for him. And I didn't end up being a janitor. I ended up being the um, shoe repair girl. So and what, I worked on what shoes. What do you do for that? Um, pr- basically after the shows, we'd fixed them, cleaned them up, painted them. And if there was a new, uh, performer coming in, we would, uh, give him a new pair and he'd break them in and we'd have to like do any changes or alterations to them. Are they handmade shoes, like custom for every performer? Uh, it's different. Yeah. Some of them were like just, uh, wrestling shoes, like covered. And then some of them, you know, the high wire walkers are all like custom made, you know, because it's just like one thin piece of, of leather. So I did that. And then I also did makeup on like three clowns. Um, they were bald. And so their whole head was painted in makeup. So they couldn't reach the top of their head or the back of their head. So every day from I think it was like 450 until like 540 for five years, I was in their room painting. Yeah, for five years. And it was um, one of those, like, you know, watch what you dream for kind of thing. You know, I was like, I want to work for Cirque. I'm going to do whatever. And then I was like, really? <laughs> Couldn't slap it on makeup again. Here I am. 545. You know where I'm going to be. What's clown locker room talk like? Well, uh, so in this locker room, there was four clowns and one performer who was like miniature performer, like four feet tall, the little Brazilian guy on a, on a bike. So we would usually fight over uh, control of the music. So because there was five of them, everybody had their own day. Um, <laughs> uh, we would usually, um, my, I would get like a couple of days in here and there. And I remember during that time, actually, I was really big on like self-help and stuff. So I'd play these self-help tapes and they'd be like, oh my God, really? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, totally. Um, and then we'd have like, crazy loud ABBA one day and everybody the rest of the cast will be like crowded around our door like what's going on in there what are they doing you know (laughs) um uh during that time um I kind of wanted to get into film a little bit too like I'd been sniffing around at film and I had an opportunity to go and work on a small like low budget one and that kind of like gave me a little bit of a bug like okay there's something else I can do with this degree because all I'd known since graduating which was in theater was actually Cirque du Soleil. So I hadn't done much theater, um, some side hustles. Um, but I really wanted to see what the film world was like too. So I did the small low budget film in uh, North Central Florida with a little known actor called Josh Brolin, who was like that 20 something. That, you know. Yeah, just that kid. Whatever. Yeah. What's and, he doing uh, these days? <laughs> <I wonder. laughs> 
and Timothy Oliphant and a couple oh, of other people. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, Girl. totally. I mean, literally kids. Um, the next one after that, after I met that film crew, a guy on that crew um, who was a costumer was on Big Fish, uh, the Tim Burton movie. And so there were circus scenes in that. And so they needed some extra help in the circus department. And then he called me and asked me if I'd come and help them for a couple of weeks. So they gave me basically like a leave of absence from Cirque. And I went there. And it was one of those, like, you know, Tim Burton standing like 10 feet away from me. There's like a pig running through my legs with a tutu on. Like, I remember it was really horrible weather. It was like lightning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just close my eyes and remember this moment, like for the rest of my life. Because it was just, everybody's also in 70s circus costumes also, by the way, which was like mind blowing. Um, and that was a game changer for me. Like I, I had to read the script and I remember reading the script and there was a line in the script that said, a goldfish um, kept to the size of the bowl that it's in. Like, it will grow to that size. If it gets put in a bowl that's two or three times bigger, it'll grow two or three times bigger. And I was like, Orlando, this bowl is too small yeah, yeah. for this girl. And so I um, packed up and moved to New York. Like, pretty much that time, it was like New York or L.A. L.A. was all film. New York was theater and film, which was my background was more theater. So my first film, no, not film. My first Can I thing. I here because I really think that this is something that should be clarified, and I'm kind of curious about it too. How do you describe the difference between what a wardrobe or costumer does for theater or film? Yeah. So going on to Big Fish, like coming from my world of theater, like and being surrounded by film costumers, like from LA and and some pretty you know big league costumers. Um, it was super eye-opening, like in the sense that like every stitch that I make on a shoe or whatever in Cirque or in theater, like has to save someone's life maybe. Um, in film, it's like I can be standing behind somebody sewing it on kind of loosey-goosey. If it falls off, it's okay. We'll do another take. Like it really is just has to last for him to walk from here to there. You know, you can fix it again. You can put top stick on it, which is like, never done in theater or i mean it's not never done but it's rarely done um because you can't just run out there in the middle of a show and fix something so everything is made to last like for a long long time and so in film also as a costumer you could be doing more like in the world of like continuity so you're making sure that what you shot last week looks like what you're shooting today because they're not shot you know um with the right time um so, yeah, I mean, I kind of realized that, I mean, and also financially, <laughs> uh, film and movies are just three, four times what you get paid for theater and, and live performance. So, yeah, for me, it was like, oh, my gosh, if I already know all this from Cirque and from theater and I can go, I can get into film like that's no problem. That's I got this. Like, is it easier sure. to go from film to from theater to film than it is to yes. go from film to theater? Yes, I think yeah. so. For me, it was. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. Yeah, I don't know many people who've gone the other way. Hmm. That's not to say it hasn't happened, but is that I a common know. thing? Is it like, oh God, girl, you got to go do some film work? Oh, you know, like <laughs> if you're like a theater purist, are you like, oh? Yeah, there is that. I mean, there's even that same thing. I think even with actors that they're purists in that same in that same sense, because for them, like theater is just so much in my in my ideas like it's harder and it's and it is purer and film is like 
okay, I got to act jealous and, you know, for five minutes and say it like this and cut and, you know, what have you. And the same thing for, for doing costume. It's like, let's get it, get it done. You know, it's an interesting comparison. I haven't really thought about it like that, but yeah. Yeah. My first show in New York um, was Linda Lovelace, the musical. That was in a small theater in Long Island. And I was like, watch out, New York. I got you. Like, I got you. I got a live show already. Tina Yothers, I think, was the, the lead oh in it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Last from the past. Yeah, totally. I'm 45, so I remember Tina Yothers. <laughs> right, <laughs> totally. Everyone else no. here is... Yeah, it's over my head. I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that? Julia, yeah. Caroline, and Ryan, our producer, are all a bit younger than I think Allison and I are. And they're like, Tina Yothers. Give it yeah. a goog. Okay. Um... Yeah, so I was a costume designer on that one. And of course, like for a low budget, your costume designer, supervisor, you know, the whole shebang. And um, started getting my union days on um, the David Letterman show. Also, crickets. Anybody? Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. No, I don't even Letterman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm doing that, getting my union days, um, doing pretty much like Paul's wardrobe and some of the um like small little like skits they would do and some of the um the the special guests yeah um and that's how i got all my, all my days and then from there i just went on to to feature films getting these days what do you mean by that what does that explain that for those that don't know etc totally so for each union actually it's different and and it's actually changed over the time but you have a set you know of requirements for getting into different places so at that time, it was 30 days working on a production, mm. on a union show. Um, sometimes now you can get days not on a union show. Um, and sometimes it's 45 days. Some places are 90 days. I think at a, at a time in New Orleans when we were like swamped with people and everybody's aunt was getting in the union, we made it 90 days. Um, and then you have to pay usually like a $500 fee or something to that effect. And then some places like the, um, the other, uh, costume designer union, I think, uh, I want to say the 829, you also have to submit a portfolio and go under review, um, with the union and other designers. So yeah, you get your days is basically like 30 days. Sometimes you can get 30 days over the course of like 18 months. So, you know, it might not all be on one show. It'll be like, I got two days on this film and three days on that film. So you just have to add it all in, in the one time period. And I know for me, just I've come from a float building background. And so I have a lot of friends that went from float building into sculpture on film. And honestly, it was a godsend for a lot of them because you go from making peanuts to suddenly having like healthcare. And, yeah. this like a, and obviously it's still insane in its own way, but... You can actually like buy a house and have a living and have that level of security that a lot of artists don't get. Um, well, I have to totally. say, I know a lot of costume designers in Los Angeles who work in the industry, and I've seen every single one of them make a post on Facebook looking for work at some point, which is part of the freelance hustle. But I have never seen a New Orleans artist having to fill in any gaps. Yeah, I think there's also, I mean, there's obviously better ways to communicate now, you know, and to, with social media and what have you to, to stay connected with, with groups. So, I mean, for me now here, it's like, however long I've been here now, it's like if somebody wanted a zombie costume or if somebody wanted a 1940s period costume, that'd be two different phone calls for me for 
for who to make. And if somebody wanted it for theater and if somebody wanted it for film, those are also two different phone calls that I would make. Oh, yeah. I feel this all the time with what I do. And, you know, depending on the person, the client contacting me for what they need, it's like, okay, what level are you talking about? You know, are you need it for your kid's birthday party? Do you need it for a production? It's a whole range of, you know, efforts. Uh, going back to the making peanuts, though, it is a huge difference. I'll just do my quick, like, pro-union thing as far as, like, being union versus non-union, right? So, I mean, the the bargaining rights and the things that they do for you as an individual and, like, what your working conditions are, and I've really seen kind of both sides of that, like how companies, productions, who are really just about the bottom line and money, um, are, you know, they protect you to make sure that if you work during lunch, you get paid for it. You know, if you only get 10 hours between when you left work and the next morning that you get paid for, you know, they're invading your your time off. So for me, like really the more time I've spent in the union and working, the more I see how much protection they give you as a freelance worker. So any, the money is good. The benefits are great. But also like as a freelance worker, they make sure that you're taken care of. You know. Yeah, I think a lot of people that don't come of a creative background, which is usually the people that are paying, you know, cutting the checks, um, they think that art is magic. They don't really understand what goes into it and the amount of like just sweat and labor. And I think it's really, I mean, I just feel like I'm constantly having to give pep talks to my friends to convince them that their work is worth what they're charging. And it's really nice to have the collectivism of a union to be backing you up from that and to and mm. to realize that if you're undercharging, then you're undercharging your entire community. Right, totally. Yeah, you're doing nobody any favors. So you're 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 hustling in New York, you're up there, you're you've got shows, you're earning your days, pick up from there. Yep. So then I got on a couple of feature films and then I designed um a small film um with this great actor um Chiwetel EGO4 who was in, um, I want to say, Eight Years a Slave. Um, so I did um, a great, like, little film up there with some great, again, like, young cast. Um, and then I was starting to go away a lot for work. Like, um, I did a film in Salt Lake City, and then I did another show um, in Florida, and I was really starting to get worn out with New York. Like, I was like, this, you can't see the sky. It smells. Like, they're just really starting to feel like, okay, I came up there for my career. In my 30s, do I really want to like plant here longer? Like, I really don't kind of like it, you know. Um, and I feel like I've gotten, you know, some pretty good connections. Like, let's see about moving on. And so, when I would go on location from then on, I was like, maybe I could live here, Las Vegas. Mm, maybe not. Uh, let's go to Los Angeles for a show. Maybe I could live here. Mm, not so much. And then in 2007, I came on a, on a film to New Orleans and I was like, maybe I could live here. Hell yes. Yes, what was the I film? could. The film was called um, Blackwater Transit. And, and it was a great film about sort of like a um, underground gun runner and, a really, and his really eccentric girlfriend. There were rumors that um, it was money laundering. <laughs> uh, Tony Kay was the director. Um, we kind of had like a spend whatever you need, get whatever you need. Tomorrow we're going to have a helicopter. Really? Yeah, because he wants one. So we're going to have one. And then, I mean, in our department, I remember it being like, tomorrow she's going to walk into a pool. What do you mean she's going to walk into a pool? She's wearing a fur coat. And it was like, yeah, and the pool's going to be red. 
So it was like, okay, so then we're going to need to get a second fur coat because now that one's going to turn this red. this is big budget? Like, yeah. The biggest, is this the biggest, biggest budget that you had had to that point? Um, not so much. It was the most feeling of, of that unlimited. Freedom to do whatever you yeah. wanted. Yeah. For the director right. to do whatever but he like, wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So like in the middle of the night, I'm dropping off a second fur coat at our seamstress's house asking her to make it look like the first one, you know, because the second one is like longer, it's two sizes bigger. So we've got to make it match the first one because the first one, as soon as she comes out of the pool, it's done, you know, like done, it's red. And then what if we have to go back and do another take or then there's part of that scene we still have to do before the pool stuff. So, yeah. How, how long did the seamstress have to do these alterations overnight. to the fur coat? Yeah, I mean, the thing was, I mean, it was like one of those sort of like white foxy ones from the 80s from like a Dallas show or whatever yeah and so we had to go and like find one at a vintage store first of all that was even similar that would even work um and then yeah then she spent the night altering it and she's one of the best seamstresses I've ever worked with since I mean if you can do that I'm like anything anything I would give that woman and hopefully she's in the union She's definitely in the union. It sounds like exhausting work. I mean, let's let's talk for a minute about, for those that don't know, and I only know a little bit about what it takes to cut it as a wardrober, but you're on set, it's exa- like when you're needed, you're needed. When you're not, you're not. You're sitting there, but yet, I mean, just talk about this because it sounds exhausting. Yeah, so... For that one, for Blackwater Transit, I was the assistant costume designer, so I barely went to set. Like, I was really shopping and doing research and uh, there for fittings and doing a lot more of uh, finding the resources. Um, More so recently, I've been working on set because I find that I can limit my time commitment when I'm on set. So when I'm not on set, if I'm supervising or designing, then I'm pretty much on the clock 24 hours a day. You know, like the director just changed his mind. This is what they want now. Or the cast just changed or what have you. And it's your responsibility to make sure that happens. If you're on set, you work from the minute, like the camera rolls until the minute the camera wraps and you're done. You go home. Nobody calls you and says, I can't come to work tomorrow and you have to find somebody else or the cast has changed. It's not your responsibility. I go home for the weekends. My phone doesn't ring. It's great. It's a great thing. So it's a couple of, um, it's less responsibility, but I find that it gives me more time to myself and, and I'm not devoting as much time to the production and, and changes and stuff like that. So last year, two years ago, I was the um, onset costumer for Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson, just those two. Um, on a show called The Highwaymen on Netflix, and they were basically playing the two Texas Rangers that took out Bonnie and Clyde. So it's 1940s. So when I was called to do it, um, you know, I was like, it sounds good, but they both sound like they each need their own costume, or really. I mean, they're like high-end, you know, personalities, big personalities. And they were like, yeah, but it's just one costume. Like, they're on the road. They're on the road for, like, almost a year and a half following Bonnie and Clyde, so they only have one change. So you're not, like, you know, trying to keep up with a lot of different changes. So, and plus it's going to be a lot of, like, you're following them in a car, so there's not a lot of, like, getting in and out and stuff like that. Well, let me tell you, those two guys found more ways to change up one suit than you've ever known in your life. And Kevin actually said one time he came to set and he put his um, tank top on backwards. So you could see it. Normally you couldn't see it, but you could see it right underneath his shirt. And I, and I looked closely and I was like, Kevin, 
I can see your tank top. How is that happening? He was like, oh my God, I think I, and I looked and he was like, yeah, I put it on backwards. I was like, it's okay. Like, we'll just button up your shirt a little bit more. We'll, we'll fudge it. It's fine. And sure enough, like I go to like run over and take care of Woody, right? Do something for Woody. I turn around and look and like Kevin's over like by his car undressing like outside of the door. And, you know, his shirt is like hanging up on a tree. I mean, it was like my biggest nightmare all around. Like, so Kevin was like, I'm really sorry. You got to watch me. I'm like a 12 year old boy. And I was like, it's like two 12 year old boys. You kidding me? It's like, I'm taking care of two 12 year old boys and their wardrobe. And yes, you, you know, we're changing it up a lot. It's like, Oh, is he rolling up his sleeves? I'm going to roll up my sleeves and loosen my tie. And then I'm going to take off my jacket when I come in, but then I'm going to put, leave it on the chair. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. So I'm busy writing notes and writing notes. So in that sense, going back to your question of like on set, you're waiting and you're not waiting. You're not like, if you're doing your job, you're not waiting. You're always like, I'm always like, yeah, exactly. So when the camera's not rolling, I'm like, where's your jacket, Kevin? Like I'm looking at them. All right. So we're, we're, we're here. You're, you fall in love with new Orleans. Yep. Pick up from there. Fall in love with new Orleans and, um, did a couple of other movies here. Um, I did a couple of like big volunteer, I volunteered in Africa for a little bit. I volunteered in a couple of other countries and I knew like giving back to the community has kind of always been in my, in my heart. And I was like, I don't know why I'm going away to volunteer. Like I should be doing something here in New Orleans. Like what do I want to do here? And when I would go away to volunteer, I'd also try different things. It was like teaching English or rebuilding houses or, um, working at an orphanage. And it was just trying to find like what really clicked with me. So in the end, it was like, I want to do something back home for my community. Like, I don't want to volunteer at other places anymore. I want to volunteer and do something in my community, number one. And number two, I might as well do something I know best, which is like sewing fabric, costumes, repurposing, you know, getting rid of waste, all that stuff. So it was just like, you know, came to me in my sleep, rickrack, do it. What are you waiting for? Just do it. And so Rick Rack has been in operation now for how many years? It's been oh, a while. Eight years. I know, it's crazy. Yeah. And I should say that Rick Rack not only teaches kids for a while, and here and there you do have some um, adult classes. I myself am a Rick Rack student. I took my first millinery class at Rick Rack and have taken a few classes there. That's how I met Allison. So I want to pick up with, the story of Rick Rack and, and COVID and what you did to meet the community's needs for masks and personal protection devices. So in the spring, we were at the KIPP school on St. Claude teaching about 12 eighth graders how to make costumes for The Wiz. So they were doing a production of The Wiz. We were contacted by the teacher. And this we've also done a couple of other times where it's like they kind of dump on the art teacher to do costumes for a school play, right? Um, so we got a contact from them who just said, we need, we need some help. And we've heard that you guys have done this before. We have done it a couple of times with some other schools now. Um, so we were there working on some lion costumes, um, doing some hand sewing techniques. And then, you know, the Friday we get a call of like, we're not going to be back. The kids aren't coming back on Monday. Right. And then I got a call from the city of New Orleans from uh, Carol Morton. She's in the, um, 
I want to say she was something, something to do with like economics. And I'd done a costuming and film class with them before where we got some, some local students and they, they paid their way to take a costuming and film class with me. And she called and said, the city's going to start putting some feelers out for help with PPE and just wanted to check in with you and see if you were interested. And, and if you are, there's going to be a big, very big conference call happening on Sunday between city officials um, and uh, people in the maker community. Like there was somebody, I think, who did like a big um, woodworking shop or something like that. They were going to start doing face shields or something. And just this other little organization called the Cajun Navy. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, do you want to get in on that phone call? So I was like, sure. You know, I'm not working on the whiz anymore, obviously. So um, definitely put my name in. I mean, and then there must have been, I mean, between 20 and 30 people in on that, on that conference call, the list of names, you know, like I knew two people on it. Um, and it really was sort of like, we want to get PPE out there, but we want to make sure that it's the right stuff. You know, it kind of went back and forth between like, do we just get it out there to get it out there? So it's something. So something's better than nothing. Or do we really like take the time to to prototype, get it tested and all this other stuff? So it kind of went back and forth with that. Um, it was a bit of a, a waiting game. And then after that, you know, then you make your follow up phone calls of like your your sidebars that you had from that conference call of who to contact, who's going to be trying to fulfill different needs. A guy, a friend of a, a neighbor, did an article. Was doing an article at the time and said, "You know, do you anybody I can interview about mask making?" And asked me, "Sure, I'll give you a few words." And and I just basically gave him like, you know, this is where we're at. Just like what I said just now, like we're all trying to figure out like um, if we're going to start making some prototypes, if we're waiting for official word to come down from somewhere of what and how and where and when, and. Um, and then the next email I get is from Walmart saying, we want to give you all the fabric we have from six stores. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, this is bigger than what, like, my living room. So and I started to see little things on Facebook, like, this city needs some masks. And some sewers who are like, hey, you know somebody, this city needs some masks. And, and I was like, I can really feel this blowing up like yeah. and you just got that sense of urgency from everyone all the time where I was like I can really really see this blowing up well I went back in my emails and looked and I emailed you on March 23rd I had supplies and that's what I was most interested in was like okay I have supplies how do I get supplies to the people that need them because I have more than I can physically sew right now and then the whole you know moment of what masks are we making? How do we make them? Are they good enough? You know, before we were just accepting that everybody needed masks of any sort. Um, but you were really looped in from that very early moment with officials from hospitals even where they were contacting you and you were putting together a team at this point to not only make your standard, hey, hand out mask, but masks that could actually be used in the hospitals, correct? Yeah, totally. So that was the other thing. I just remembered. The other thing that we were doing at that time was we were getting ready for our fundraiser, your favorite, Hollywood Thrift. Yes. Right. So we just moved into a church um, in Gentilly. So um, that kind of shifted into like everything we were going to sell for the fundraiser got moved to the side. And that's ended up being our like 
base camp, really, which is one of the first things that we needed was like the drop-off pickup point, right? So we've got this whole other contingency, which we've never had before in our lives in the costume world or in any world of like no contact, mm -hmm. right? So even if I, if I come up with a prototype or a way to make a mask, I can't show you how to do it and I can't come to you or you can't come to me to see how to change it. So everything has got to be done like completely different as far as like we're talking, to me, it was like an antiquated system. You know, like we're writing things on paper and sending notes. So it didn't matter with, you know, we could still do email and things like that. But things had to be sent to somebody in person. Like things had to be like delivered to somebody in person. So um, one of the first things with like trying to corral the resources was who wants to sew, who can sew. Because not everybody were, it wasn't how they were going to respond to this pandemic, even though they could sew, you know. So maybe they wanted to drive instead maybe they wanted to cut fabric instead maybe they wanted to be sort of an organizer instead um you know be an administrator so the next part was like finding out the roles of everybody that wanted to be involved like how they wanted to be involved um and as far as the the city officials um it kind of went from there to um uh the hospital that we were working with the University Medical Center was somebody contacted a costumer, a film costumer. They were neighbors. That was it. And said, we need some at our hospital. So I was kind of waiting for that, too. It was like having a first, instead of like just starting to make them, like I wanted to have like an in somewhere so I could actually be like, do these work? You know, like I'm going to give you some of these prototypes and you need to tell me like if these work or not. And um, yeah. I mean, I think I, I remember like taking that first bag of masks to him and it was like precious cargo in my in my front seat. You know, I was like, I was like, it's surreal. You know, it all really is. But then even waiting for him outside of the hospital where you're thinking like there's people coming in and out of here that are sick right now. You know, like, is this where where this should happen? And it got to be really this really odd, like I'm meeting a nurse down by the river in a van under a bridge to hand off masks, you know, like this really bizarre where you're doing all these drop-off pickup things take um, the masks take them <laughs> quickly <laughs> yeah totally the, the red brick on the left don't go to the blue brick that's for don't dropping off don't touch me <laughs> just <laughs> and then the other one was um a connect i think with like tulane medical school who was actually a guy who worked um in the department that that tested work materials like masks and he took some of our prototypes too and basically you know after my conversation with him it was really just like unless it's an n95 you're just not going to get the protection so whether it's made you know whatever different styles there were at the time with the seam down the middle with the pleats with the no pleats with a filter oh without God. a filter right it was either there was no test at that time where it was like, this is 70%, this is 80%, it's 90%. It was either pass or fail. Like it either was or it wasn't. So it didn't matter how you made it or what you made it with. If it wasn't an N95, it was going to fail. It was just going to fail or test. So all of that like stuff kind of went right out the, the window. Like we went with the, a pattern that worked for us that was... Um, I think one of one of my seamstresses did a test like you can do a test with like a lighter in front or there's a smell test also. Um, and it was a pattern that would just work for everybody, whether you had a serger or didn't have a serger, whether, you know, whatever kind of materials that you had, it was pretty easy to pass out to everyone. And then there was, you know, elastic, no elastic. And, and most of the people at the 
hospital that we were dealing with did not like elastic. So we kept with our ties and and it also ended up being better because then it ended up being like the great elastic drought. Right. Of, <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> there was day, there by like days where I was getting seven and eight texts an hour for elastic. I mean, it was right? like, where yeah. do I get elastic? Yeah. Followed by the great bias tape drought, you know, like that was the other thing that people were using. So yeah, we went through all of it all the time. So we had the steady supply. I was going to say just to follow up real quick, the steady supply then of fabric coming from Walmarts, right? So we had about, we had easily 300 bolts of fabric and wow. uh, we had, they, they gave us, you know, Ziplocs and laundry detergent and, and of course bias tape and thread and needles and whatever like we thought that we needed from, from six of their stores. And so we organized that to be able to tell people like, if you need any of these supplies, here's the form you fill out, send it to us. And so, yeah, for however many weeks or at least a couple of months, um, we had chairs outside of the church in our contact, contactless um, system of handing out fabric. So if somebody filled out a form, said, I want 10 yards of fabric. And we asked them kind of like, do you want solids, kids? You know, wh- who's it for? And um, and needles and whatever else that they said they needed. And then we had just a line of chairs outside the church and would have a name on a, on a chair. Lucy, here's your bag of, of fabric and your needles and your vice tape and what have you. You're scheduled at 10 o'clock to do a pickup. And yeah, so there were people like, in my in our production anyway that I never saw that just answered emails sent out people's like pickup times drop off times da 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 and um and there was probably three of us that were at the church how many people full-time. were in your whole network of sewers do you think um I think probably like sewing eight um and then runners I think we had four and then admin three. Mm-hmm. And then the three of us at the church, and there was probably some some others along the way too. Sure, yeah. sure, but a pretty small operation as far as yeah. about twenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many masks do you have a count? Do you even is that even possible? Yeah, um, I think during the course, so we ran out of the fabric, the Walmart fabric, right? And then we started like then we started diving into the rickrack fabric. Um, over seven thousand. Wow. Totally. I forgot, actually, we did have two, three people doing laundry for us. So we would launder them and then put them in like a, a Ziploc. So that was another thing that came, that evolved. Um, I don't even know, like maybe a couple of weeks into it or, or four weeks into it was that, you know, you couldn't just hand it to somebody, right? So it had to be packaged. Right. And then you had to give them directions of how to use it, right? Because then you can't just be like fondling your mask all day. So, you know, every time you take it off, you got to wash your hands or sometimes you have to actually wash your, wash your mask every time you take it off. So then we had like the girl who was making labels for us <laughs> um, and logos and, you know, uh, what about uh, liabilities? Then it was like use with compassion and care, you know, at your own, you know, expense or what have you. Um, yeah. And then we had pa- the whole packaging thing after that so that. When we were handing them out, you know, they were in a nice little Ziploc with care instructions on them. Yeah, because as I, I mean, I remember sewing the mask for the first time thinking there are so many places along the way that I'm contaminating this, even when I'm trying. And my studio has never been cleaner in its life. It smelled like bleach for like 
three weeks. I was bleaching everything. And, you know, you just, you don't really think about, well, for me, I stick pins in my mouth and like do all this gross <laughs> shit while I'm sewing. You know, it's always, it, you know, it goes to you clean, but as you're making masks and suddenly conscientious of this. Mask making for this quarantine purpose has been the experience that I have stopped putting pins in my mouth. And I oh, have good. not put a pin in my mouth since March. Wow. And Amen to that. Yeah, it's like I broke a smoking habit. Yeah, <laughs> it's, seriously. It's, it's almost harder. Like, having quit both, it's... <laughs> I would equate them. Totally. It's like, what kids don't do what I do, because I'm going to stick pins in my mouth. Don't do that. It's... it's Like, and... I mean, it's just... It's... Whatever. Well, they say it's don't put pins wild. in your mouth because you can inhale that and i've read horror stories but my excuse is i use the quilting pin so those are really long i figure those aren't gonna go down my throat yeah totally i mean it's fast and easy you know like now i just now i just tuck them in, into my shirt usually and i always get somebody who's like you have a thing i'm like i totally know it's better than my mouth dude let me tell you Meanwhile, I just throw my pins on the floor. Julianne will tell you this. She's been in my studio. And if you come in my studio without shoes, sorry. I've got, I mean, there's pins all over my floor. They never go in my foot. But I have some clients who are always afraid and they point out anytime a pin falls down. And I have one client who, before he will walk into my studio, he goes through and picks up any pin on the floor that he can find. Well, thank He's you. He's never wow. been stuck. He's never been stuck. Well, cause, wow. Yeah, and, and you've Some served your purpose. Thank you for visiting. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, met a customer. I worked with a customer one time in L.A. who kneeled down on a needle. Yeah. Ooh. Needles are dangerous. Yeah. And you know what? She was kind of a little bit, a little bit drunky wonky most of the time. So when she like called and she was like, I'm not going to be able to make it in today. I kneeled down on a needle. We were like, sure you did. And then she sent us a picture of the x-ray and we were like, oh my God, please don't ever let that happen to me. It was crazy. Crazy. And that's scary in the bottom of the foot because you're closer to your vital organs. Like it's, if it works its way up, it's halfway there. Yeah. So, ugh. So uh, I think we we halted production like June 29th. Like we all got mask burnout and um, and and gave ourselves the deadline to to finish by then. Um, so yeah, just over seven thousand that we made. And then there was also like we got a grant from our friends at Entergy for just doing the packaging part. So people we work with the the website Sodat. I don't know if you know about them or not, but. They're basically through the city. They created a website for people who needed masks or people who were donating masks just for all those people who were like, scramble, scramble. Where do I go? What do I do? Um, this website gave them a place to like, if I need a mask, like, request one. And if I have masks to donate, I can donate them. And then also, do I need supplies? Who's got supplies? If I'm rich and I just want to donate to somebody, where do I go to help the mask people? Um, so, so that contacted us and said can you be that those people that collect the donated masks so outside of the church was a little mask drop-off box and um you know we just come in there and look in the morning and there'd be masks in there so we would sort of do like quality check of those make sure people were making them correctly or on the right page and then uh wash them and bag them so um somebody's trying to be a garbage bag full and sometimes it was you know just a few and um, some real sweet notes and cards in there from ladies all over. We would drop those off to uh, one of our great cheerleaders, um, Council Member Kristen Palmer. 
Um, so she helped us get, you know, a couple of grants to keep going, but she also was the major like funneler of all of those donated masks. So if you were working at a food pantry and you needed 20 masks, you put in there and sewed out that you needed them and she made sure you got them. Yeah, I I have to echo my thanks and appreciation for her because, and this is a perfect lead in to where I want to take us next, which is, of course, the mask making effort that you were behind led into a mask making effort to support the protests and that effort through that period of time. And she was 100% in the group that I was with the Nola allies in support when we were giving masks throughout the protest, she was an active supporter of making sure that we had whatever we needed from city council. So it was really cool to see that support as well. And so you guys ended up not only providing masks, you expand beyond, you know, servicing the hospitals to really being just a general hub of providing these masks throughout the community. Yeah, totally. So I think in that, the packaging was just over 3,600. Yeah, it was it was a good amount. And it just it was a system, you know, that that worked well as far as like they were the the the, the point person. If you needed them or you had them. Then we were sort of like the physical entity that that then funneled them and then gave them back. Um, and then Kristen was sort of the person who then was like, okay, who needs them? Let's see who gets priority, you know, and was the one sort of who handed them out from there. And were most of your main sewers or your kind of core around you were f- drawn from the local union, right? The Ayatsi, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, That's 100%. Cool. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's kind of, you know, even though we weren't there around each other in person, but we kind of speak the same language. You know, like we know right away if you're talking about like a fastener or elastic, my what my 10 questions are, they're going to immediately follow that. Like, is it braided, quarter inch, how long? Like we kind of, you know, know the language right away. I mean, I remember some of those phone calls in those first few days. It was like, Allison knows the she knows she knows the pattern. Got to call her. Call Allison. Allison knows everything. Call Allison. <laughs> right. Like you are like Don't. the like if anyone in this town knows, it is Allison. I remember thinking that. So I was one of the choir that was. Yeah. Yeah. You got to tell me. I know, you know, tell me right now. Um, and I really didn't. I mean, like I was saying, I really didn't know that there wasn't an end all be all to the pattern. It was really like the best that you can do. Really, that's all you can do. I mean, I think for everybody, you know, it was like for some people, I making masks was their sanity through this. You know, that I talked to a lot of people where it was like, this is really helping me me cope and feeling like they can give back. And then I remember talking to one guy who was like, you know, tearing up sheets and going through his sister's closet. You know, he was like, I'm just going to keep making them until they don't need them anymore. Like I've gone through all my fabric and da da da. And then some people who are like professional seamstresses who were like, not going to do it. You know, it's just not how I'm going to cope through this. You know, it's not going to be what helps me get through this, which is to each his own, you know, like to each his own. So there was that, um, you know, that coming together moment for everybody in the community um, doing what they what they could and each person just dealing with it in their own way. You know, like you couldn't really judge. Um. Uh, as you really actually during this whole time, like no matter what, if it's social justice or what it was, it was really just a matter of like put all your judgments aside, whatever you do or whatever you did and just help, you know, just do whatever you can to to help. We're all in this together. Yeah, you know? find find your way. And 
I, again, this episode is in part so much about how awesome costuming has served us as a way of connecting us, you know, as community members and how that allowed us to pivot so quickly and take care of these needs. And um, that kind of brings us back around to, you know, Rick Rack and how cool it was for me to see sewing become like a life skill, like not just something that was frivolous and like something that's silly crafters and homebodies and, you know, girls that had spent too much time with their grandmas had picked up, but to really recognize it as a life skill. And this is something I've recognized for a long time. I've long said my apocalypse skill is sewing, but really this moment revealed that. And that was so cool. And it was cool. I feel like to see not only people that had long been doing this, but so if you were a seamstress and it wasn't your calling, there were so many other people in the community, I'm sure reaching out or among the chorus reaching out to you being like, I sort of know how to use my sewing machine. How do I do this? Like just the, the motivation to do something. And I love that Rick Rack is a part of teaching this life skill to a future generation. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think for me, I I hope people realize also how much we depend on China to sew stuff for us or other nations or whatever that we pay them whatever ridiculously low amount of money um for something that's really valuable and really needed. And really like how much that that skill needs to come back into the economy, into manufacturing, into this country, into the local like arena. Like even now when I talk to people who are uh, designing clothes or designing things here in town, like they can't find a, a place to manufacture them or make them here. You know, we're so dependent on these other countries to make things for us or to be the sewers or the manual labor almost. It's like that skill, like everybody wake up, wake the F up. My great-grandfather was a tailor's assistant before he joined the army and he joined the army and he went off to Europe and he was captured by Nazis almost immediately. And he spent years in a POW camp and he mended the uniforms of his Nazi captors Wow! and he got extra food Golly! because he knew how to sew. So wow. it has been a part of my life. That is always been my survival's plan. Yeah. Wow. So Making masks, at least I wasn't hemming Nazi pants. Well, <laughs> that's on a yeah, you business. Got, you got to have those the silver linings when you can get it. <laughs> yeah. That's how desperate we are. <laughs> <laughs> silver lining. Right, I, totally. It's better than doing anything for Nazis. But yeah, he yeah. he went through basic training, and that's not what helped him survive. It was his ability to sew. Yeah. Well, I tell kids, too, that, like, and I don't know where I heard this, but at some point it, that if you know how to sew, you can pretty much build a house. Like, because it's really, it's construction techniques, right? So, which, where's your gravity coming from? Which side is going to be heavier or stronger? Um, where, does they, where do they interlock or how do they interlace? So, it's really, like, I mean, for me, sometimes when I'm teaching kids, it's, like, 10% with a needle. The rest of it is really just, like, confidence, commitment the whole like teamwork and um, giving them pride in their work. And then, yeah. And then we build a house. Well, is there anything that you want to add about Rick Rack? Because I want people to know 
about this nonprofit. I wanted them to know about what they can do. We will certainly give everyone the information they need through social media to be able to support you. But, um, uh, you know, one last plug for Rick Rack here. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Why not? Right. Um, yeah, so we're you know we're changing just a little bit now. We're where as before, you know, a lot of it was sewing. I think the environment's become more of an issue for us now, so we do incorporate that a lot more into the classes. So we're sort of tweaking a little bit with our our business plan. We're tweaking a little bit our our website. So all of those things are kind of um, under review right now and being changed. We're also like really paying more attention to creating more economic opportunities here um, locally in New Orleans, especially to the African American community. So we're also expanding our partners um, that we worked with before and just being more aware of people that are, are our students now and our teachers. Awesome. Seriously, y'all, uh, when, you know, Give Nola Day comes around, if you remember nothing from this podcast, remember Rick Rack and get out there and support them. They're doing great work in our community. Thank you so much, Allison, for being here and talking about these experiences. You know, you were definitely a part of that early COVID days for me. And I remember being able to reach out to you meant a lot to me and having you here and talk about this has been just awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, totally. It was a pleasure to be here. You guys really like carry on with this, with your badass selves. Come on. Allison was a great first guest. Thanks for inviting her, Shell. I'm so excited we got to have her on here. She was perfect to talk about this. It's a weird topic. I mean. Yeah, but it's inspirational. Like, I think it's showing how people's set of skills can serve I mean, a we've long known the mantra and lived by the mantra of party with a purpose. And it's. It's just, it's good to see it in action and to revisit that and to have that here helping us cope through this time. All right. Well, Julianne, we're at the end of our first episode and I know that we have no free time. So what's on your horizon in the next few weeks before we settle down for some Halloween chat? I'll be sewing some cool costume masks and some cozy bodysuits. And I'll be posting those on my Instagram, made by Julianne, J-U-L-I-A-N-N-E. And Caroline, what are you up to these days? I'm making uh, some custom signs for fundraising for election coming up. So um, you can see some of those at my Instagram at C to the line. That's like letter C to the line. Um... And yeah, I also, uh, you can follow me on my other Instagram, Feast and Folly, where I focus more on, it's more my research platform. If you want to nerd out over carnival history and like processional arts around the world, hit me up there. But yeah, just keeping busy, making some art. What about you, Shell? Doing some good. I'm doing my usual of overcommitting in too little time. Huh? What? And then working myself to the bone, but um, no, I'll, you know, all's well, getting the store open and, you know, just thinking about the cool ways that 
we can embrace this moment creatively to not only help each other and inspire our community, but also to just do some cool shit with costuming. And I'm excited for the next episode when we get to dig into like, how do you COVID wean it up? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got some ideas, ladies. Yeah. 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 Some social distancing, costuming, uh, brainstorming to come. Right. Even if you're just sitting behind your computer, yeah. you better be ready to costume because. Costume. Costume. Coin. Coin. Nice. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you want to, you know, learn more about everything we've talked about, turn into our social media because we'll have plenty of links there to link you to Made by Julianne, See to the Line, at NOLA Costume Center. We'll link you to Rick Rack and, you know, all the other amazing groups that we've talked to or talked about. You can find us on Instagram at Costume Talk. And you can find us at Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcast, people. So listen up. And if you want to email us, which we highly encourage you to do because this is a crowdsourced situation. Like, we want your stories, people. We, we want to hear have, from you. You got those weird right, costume like, stories. You got some Mardi Gras magic. You've, you've, Talk about it. Talk about it. Talk (laughs) about it. Your Mardi Gras sweethearts. Email. (laughs) Email your costume confessions to costumetalk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and thanks to Allison and tune in next time. And we will be talking about Halloween and spooky costuming all around. Thanks y'all.